A few years back, Carnegie Mellon University released a study about the positive effects of volunteering on those that raise their hands to help. You know, there have been studies galore that show that volunteers feel more socially connected, thus warding off loneliness and depression. But the Carnegie Mellon study went a step further. Folks over 50 who are regular volunteers are actually less likely to develop high blood pressure and actually spend fewer nights in a hospital each year. Sign me up. But what about the impact on your nonprofit? It kind of annoys me that nonprofit leaders approach volunteerism with some skepticism. Will they deliver? Shouldn't I just do it myself? This annoys me because it ignores what we call the ladder of engagement. Build a strong base of volunteers, low-level donors, steward and cultivate them with care, and they move up the ladder. That's exactly what a smart nonprofit did with and for my guest today. One day she was slicing vegetables in the kitchen, the next minute she was developing fundraising ideas, and the next minute she was a board chair. Okay, so it didn't happen in minutes, but I want you to hear the story because it's about the jewels that are part of your organization, about finding them and cultivating them. And one more thing, my guest today is not a woman of great wealth, nor does she have a Rolodex filled with millionaires, and yet she has become one of the organization's most successful and creative fundraisers. The story of my guest, also one of my dearest friends, could give you a serious attitude adjustment about the power of volunteerism. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. After a successful career in direct marketing and publishing, first as part of large firms and then out on her own, Sylvia Vogelman is now retired. Not something you would know from looking at her calendar. Maybe we should just say that she works really hard, makes a difference, and her compensation comes, as I mentioned in the intro, in the form of excellent mental and physical health. Easier still, let's just call Sylvia a full-time volunteer. In the spirit of full disclosure, you should know that Sylvia is one of my oldest and dearest friends. She has given our family many gifts over the years, but the most priceless one is being a role model to our kids modeling for them the need, the importance, and the value of giving back. Our kids don't just love Sylvia, they admire her. Sylvia, thank you for volunteering to share your story today. Glad to be with you. So after 35 years of friendship, I know quite a lot about you and your roots. Your folks and you came over after the war. You were born in a DP camp in Germany and raised in Jersey City. You came here when you were just uh, just before your second birthday. Your dad was a window washer in Harlem. Your mom worked in a maiden form factory in Bayonne. You were an only you were an only child. Clearly, your folks had no bandwidth to volunteer their own time. Every inch of it was about making a good life for you. How did you catch the volunteering bug? Tell me about the roots of that, because it feels like it's sort of part of your DNA. Well, not having siblings. Um, you know, forced me to be a social person so that I could have some friends. And in high school, um, I joined a sorority, and um, I began to be a doer and volunteer to do things. And uh, that's really how it all got started. Very interesting. Tell me about the first volunteering experience you had, and what was it, and how did it work out? 
Well, um, we um, decided to do a journal as a fundraiser um, for the sorority, and so I would go around to the retail stores and try and get journal ads. Um, I can't say I liked it, um, <laughs> you know, having to go in and talk to people and, you know, get rejection. But, you know, it was really good learning experience, and, it, it, you know, it forced me to do something that I didn't really like, but it turned out that I could do it. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So um, so let's get to the main course of this story. Um, you have volunteered in a lot of places, but it you really got roots when you um, found your way into the kitchen at God's Love We Deliver. Can you tell, um, tell my listeners about the organization, how you found your way into the kitchen, and what that experience was like for you? Well, um, we're talking about the... Um, and how long ago is 80- this? Yeah. Well, let's see. I think I've been there about 25 years now. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the age of when AIDS was um, becoming to the forefront of people's minds. And um, I was living on the Upper West Side. I went to um, a benefit, and it was for God's love we deliver. And really, I didn't know much about it, um, but it sounded interesting, and the price was right, frankly. And uh, afterwards, I got a letter saying that God's love was moving up to the youth hostel on 103rd Street, which was like a stone's throw from my apartment. And at the time, I had um, several friends that were suffering from AIDS, and I really wanted to do something. So I walked myself over. And because I was running my own business and working in an office, I wanted to do something different. And so um, it turns out that there was a kitchen and that did meals. And so really, the basis of God's love, it was started by a woman called Ganga Stone, who um, saw the need um, to... Um, feed individuals that were homebound at the time. We don't call homebound anymore, but at the time, people were really quite homebound and very sick. And um, so she started with um, some friends um, to start to feed people um, in Manhattan um, that were suffering from AIDS. And that's really how the organization got started. And then, you know, she formed a board and some, you know, prominent people came aboard and things started to roll. Um, when they moved into the youth hostel, um, I would say the kitchen was a little chaotic at first. Um, they didn't really have the money for a professional chef. But once they got started and um, they hired somebody, um, and then a professional chef came in, um, my friend Keith Berg, um, it, things really started to roll. And, you know, at the time, maybe we were serving 100 200 people as things began. Um, today, we serve over 1,600 people a day. We don't have a waiting list at God's love. And our sin- signature thing is nutrition. Um, we really care about each of the client's nutritional needs, and every client, when they sign up, gets um, to-, to talk to a nutritionist about what their um, needs are. And, you know, it really makes quite a difference. Food is really medicine. It really is. So that's the organization. That's how I kind of got started in the kitchen. Uh, I became a Tuesday morning volunteer. So um, just to to recap, when when God's Love began its work up in the youth hostel on 103rd Street, it was Mm -hmm. feeding, it was was cooking meals and delivering them as well. Is that right? Yeah. And to to about how many people at that time in the 80s? 
Uh, I don't know. Um, well, in the late 80s, early 90s, maybe 300 people 300, a day. And so you've gone from 300 to 1,600 a day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. so you and we've settled. Also, we've also, you know, we also changed what the uh, model of the organization is. We went to not only feeding people with HIV, but also people with serious illnesses. Right. Let me, I'm going to come back yeah. to that because yeah. actually that's an, it was okay. an interesting strategic pivot, which might be, um, might be interesting to talk about. Um, in uh, as you ascended up that ladder of engagement and became the, became mm -hmm. the grand poobah of God's love, we deliver. <laughs> I don't know about the grand poobah, but <laughs> I certainly enjoyed I certainly enjoyed being part of God's love. So when you started, so you so you began as part of the Tuesday morning kitchen crew. Was mm -hmm. it was it the same group of people every Tuesday morning? Uh, pretty much, yeah. And yeah, did yeah. that so and, and was that part of the? So because I often think. That volunteers, the volunteer experience, can be um, haphazard sometimes, or uh, individual in some ways. And I and I wondered um, because I, I I think I've probably had Passover dinner with most of the Tuesday morning kitchen crew. Um, that the notion that there was a tribe of you on Tuesday mornings seems yeah. to have been pretty instrumental in. Um, in sort of, you are already connected to the organization by virtue of your passion for its mission and your connection to the um, to the AIDS crisis. But but did the did the sort of the nature of the tribe of the Tuesday morning crew provide a, an additional kind of glue? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, to this day, um, some of my best friends are still from that Tuesday morning group. And, you know, people have come and gone. Uh, there is still a core that goes in on Tuesday mornings, okay? Um, I'm not one of them these days, but I have been uh, up until um, uh, a few years ago when I started a full-time job and couldn't do it. But they are still part of a, of a core of people. You know, with the kitchen, you need to know how many people are going to come in because certain jobs need to get done. And at God's love, you know, we really depend on our volunteers. There's a paid staff, but the volunteers, we really depend on them to come in and pack out food and chop vegetables and um, package up the desserts. I mean, all these kinds of things need to be done. And if we didn't have these volunteers, God's Love would be paying out at you know, somewhere in the in the amount of two million dollars extra, we would have to we would have to raise just for staffing. And so you can imagine how important the volunteers are to God's love. Completely. And I also wonder, was the is the tribe nature of this crew part of? Uh, I, I almost want to say like peer accountability, sort of the notion that if you wake up, and I remember it being a pretty early shift, mm -hmm, and you yeah. were like, oh, man, I really don't want to go this morning. Like, what mm. the, did the tribe nature of the Tuesday morning crew make you feel, oh, I've got to go because I can't let my Absolutely. buddies down? Absolutely. Um, for years, I did not miss a Tuesday morning. For years. Yeah, I think okay. there's a there's Literally. such a recipe. It didn't in this. matter. It didn't. It didn't matter what Tuesday mornings was God's love, and that's I think how, you know, a lot of the volunteers on on at least on my shift and other shifts, because there are still volunteers that are Thursday night volunteers that are really proud, and Friday morning volunteers that really 
are socialized that way as well. Yeah, I you know, they, I think they, that this is yeah. a, such an important piece of what nonprofits need to really be hearing in this. Like you may mm-hmm. not be you may not be feeding people and you might not have crews, but there are recipes, if you'll excuse the pun, there's a recipe in this about the notion of sort of creating a tribe where there's a sense of accountability amongst the volunteers. Because um, as I said in the intro, so often nonprofits are afraid to engage volunteers because they're afraid that they're, if you will, that they're not always going to deliver. Um, so no. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So tell me um, how... How did God's love we deliver make, or, or did they, make you feel like a part of the whole? So sometimes volunteers do a very specific thing, and mm-hmm. they don't really always, afe- always feel like they're part of that bigger thing. Did, did God's right. love have a strategy about sort of engaging the volunteers so that not only were they appreciated, but that the organization became known to you in a larger sense? Well, I don't know if initially they had that sensibility about it, okay? But I think as time went on, that certainly became true. Um, you know, initially, um, the, the way I kind of went from the downstairs group to also knowing the upstairs group was that well, I... Well, it sounds, uh, a, little it like, around, um, sounds yeah. a little like Downton Abbey, so... Upstairs, yeah. downstairs, right? Or Downton Abbey, baby. Yeah, right, exactly. So, you know, staff was, you know, we were in the basement, staff was on the first floor, you know, and uh, they needed, you know, help around the holidays. And, you know, of course, uh, sure, I'll be happy to help you. So, you know, that's how I kind of got started. And I knew direct mail so that, you know, they had a very small um, development department, you know, one person, one and a half persons at the time. And I started to help them with the direct mail. So, you know, that's how I kind of got interested. Um, And later on, um, though, um, when they, when we started to to build, um, we then hired somebody that was for the volunteers, okay? There was always a volunteer manager, director, whatever you want to call it. And that person really was the conduit between the volunteers, okay, and the organization. And they, uh, I've always felt that those people that they've hired and the way the manage, management wanted was to really make volunteers feel like they were important. And an important part of that is communication, letting volunteers know what's going on within the organization. Okay, and also to offer them opportunities beyond what they might do. So if there was a fair and we needed people to go work at a fair to talk about God's love, we let volunteers know about it because it's not like we had um, a a zillion people staff-wise. And our volunteers are our best spokesperson. I mean, who better to talk about the organization than the volunteers because they really care. They come. You know, and, and, you know, there's a real sense of community there. And so I really think that um, the volunteer department was a very integral, became a very integral part of the, of the um, uh, entire um, uh, organization. Was there some really sort of, did. was there some sort of, Sylvia, was there some sort of mechanism that the volunteer managers employed to educate you about what was going on with God's love we deliver so that you didn't feel like you were, you know, slicing and dicing with your friends? Like how, how, was there a mechanism? Were there meetings? Was there a newsletter? Like, yeah, there were, there were different things. There was newsletters and then, um, 
as the, as the organization grew, there became a morning volunteer associate and an evening associate. So that morning person would come down talk to the volunteers, let them know what's happening. It was very hands-on. It really was very well done, you know. And the same thing with the evening person. All the evening volunteers knew who that evening person was, if they needed to talk to somebody or if they wanted to know something. And then the evening person also kept them up to date. And there was also a newsletter, okay. And, um, you know, on uh, on some occasions, the staff came down and volunteered also in the morning, you know, to let people know that, you know, the staff really cared also about what the volunteers were doing. And of course, the kitchen staff was so fabulous, always. You know, you never left the kitchen without somebody saying, thank you for coming. Never. And okay. How simple is that, right? And how often it's forgotten. Right. Yeah. Just thank you for coming. Really, you know, it, you always felt welcome there. I mean, it really was a very, it's a very special thing in a very special place. Well, and, and it I also, think other organizations can do it. I think they really so, too. Can. They absolutely can. And it doesn't necessarily require financial resources. I think small mm -hmm. organizations feel like, well, if I don't have a volunteer manager, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I, I, I'm also very struck by your early sort of how did volunteering get into your DNA and the, the notion of you being an only child. And it's very clear that that kitchen crew and then by extension, God's love in general, mm -hmm. provided some, a real sense of family for you. Oh, really? It, it certainly did. You know, and I felt, you know, I felt like it gave me more than I gave it always. Yeah. yeah. And I still do feel that way. You know? Yeah. So how did you um, um, how did you start to stand out of the stand out from the from the rest of the crowd? I mean, you know, I know you you stand out in a crowd, but um, so did you find well, yourself I, I, itching to do more, or were you asked no, because you uh, you waded into the fundraising waters? And I yeah, and I just how did I, that I happen? Did. Uh, you know, like I said, I volunteered to help with the direct mail. You know, right to to read it and to to give them in, um individuals that they could work with, designers and stuff. And um, so, and that was, you know, something I really cared about. And when we built, when we were redoing the building um, downtown, when we were moving to the building downtown, I should say, and rebuilding it because it was a mess and we needed to put in a kitchen and all Wait, that so kind of save stuff. The, save, we it from the city. Right, right, right. Save, save, your, save my, it is one of my very, very best favorite stories of all time, nonprofit fundraising stories of all time. I, I use it endlessly. So I just, <laughs> but before you get to it, I'm going to just uh, leave my, leave the listeners in total suspense. Um, okay. So you took your skills, which were in direct mm -hmm. mail, and you yeah. said, you raised your, you raised your hand in, in cooking, and I've eaten many a meal at your home, so that was a, that was a plus for God's love. And then you said, I also know direct mail. I can help you there, which puts you into the fundraising waters, right? Mm -hmm. And then all right. of a sudden you're moving to this new building, and there's a kitchen. And, um, mm -hmm. uh, and this is, I think, where you get to tell my all-time, this is, this is the story I tell. So get ready, folks. This is the story I tell when people say, I don't know people who are wealthy. I am not wealthy. I cannot raise money. Right? Okay, Sylvia, you're on. Tell the story. It's my okay. favorite. So I always feel, look, they were raising big dollars for the building. You know, people were giving hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay. But I always feel like people, people like me, I want to give, but I can't give at that level. 
okay? I can give a couple of hundred dollars and, you know, for something like a building, maybe a thousand dollars would be a big deal for me. So we were, I was getting a tour of the building and there's lots of columns in the building and they were trying to decide what to do with it. And I had been um, to California um, a couple of months before and a friend of mine's community built a pool. And at the pool, as a fundraiser, they did these, Joan, um, uh, um, I'm forgetting my words. Um, not tiles? Tiles, thank you. I couldn't remember the word <laughs> good, tiles. Well, good thing I know the story. <laughs> so anyway, so they were doing these tiles, and what happened was those people could individually design their tiles, and there was, they were working with a tile maker. But I thought to myself, that is just a brilliant idea. And so when we were touring the building, I said, you know, I told them the story. I've been in California, blah, blah, blah. So, so you know, and at the time, um, uh, Richard Feldman, who uh, was the board chair at the time, his um, partner, uh, John Nathanson, uh, is an interior designer and architect also. And so we talked about it, and so the tiles became a thing, okay? And they got sold for $250.00 or $1,000 for a gold tile and a 250 for a red tile, and you could do it for anything. I mean, like my Tuesday morning shift, we bought a tile saying the Tuesday a.m. shift. Lots of shifts bought them. Lots of individuals, I bought a tile for my parents um, and for some friends. Um, people bought them. There are lots of them with hearts on them, which were in memorial for people that had passed away. And so that's how the tile project got started. And the entire kitchen got filled with tiles. Um, and also the volunteer um, uh, lounge also. We did tiles for the volunteers, which was a really nice thing. So if you've been a volunteer for five years, you got a tile. And a 10-year also, you got a tile. So that was a way of recognizing volunteers later on after we started the fundraising part in the, in the kitchen. So it was like, it, you know, it just kind of came to me. And, you know, and we raised really a lot of money. Go ahead. Uh, a lot of money. Come on. So, so, I, now, yeah. how, so in that space, because I know you're now in a bigger space, but in that space, mm-hmm. roughly, how much money did that idea generate? Range. I think... I think initially somewhere between a half a million and seven hundred and fifty thousand. That's the initially. best part of the story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know what? Actually, no. I think the best part of the story. Okay, so let's tease it out as you're listening to this, whether you're on an elliptical machine or in your car on the way to work. Tease out what Sylvia's talking about here. And I want you to imagine walking into that kitchen and seeing those names all over the kitchen, right? And that, so there's two, just think about how incredibly mission-centric that fundraising idea is, how simple it was, how creative it was, how mission-centric it was, and how successful it was. it's, it's, it, It is... It's just the best. It's just the best story. And you cannot go into the kitchen of God's love without getting yourself completely choked up. So when we redid the building again now, after all these years, we took all the tiles down and we saved them and cleaned them up. 
and then redid them again, put them back up again. They're very simple white tiles with names, and like I said, hearts for individuals that had passed. And it's just beautiful. I mean, it's really a symbol of what God's love is all about. So, you know, and so everybody can buy that. I mean, there's always a bigger level, but I always feel no matter whether it's um, at, at something like, uh, um, you know, building a new building or an event or something, there needs to be a way for people at that can't afford the higher levels to be able to participate. It's also, so. it is about people who can't afford. It's also... It's also an entry-level, welcome-to-God's-love kind of, you know, that's also about the ladder of engagement on a fundraising standpoint, too, right? Because that might have been the initial gift that somebody made that Mm -hmm. tied them to God's love in a way that brought them up the fundraising ladder of engagement to higher degree of participation as as a financial supporter as well. Absolutely. um, And um, I, I have gotten a tour of that new kitchen, and... The other thing that's quite cool about it is that there's a lot of room for new tiles, right? <laughs> we we decided, sure, why not? Why <laughs> well, not? Because people want to. Once once people get a tour of that place, they want to, you know. Completely. So it's really quite a lovely thing. So yes, once you is. came up with that idea and the money started coming in, did somebody come come banging on your door and say, Sylvia, you got to be a board member now? Is that how it happened? No, you know, actually, how it happened was they asked the staff. If they knew anybody they thought might make a good board member. Yay. And the staff volunteered me, mm-hmm. which I thought was just lovely, actually. Well, it's yeah. it, it, lovely is one word. Smart is the other word. Mm-hmm. Right? How many yeah. people think about asking their staff, who do you engage with? And what is the, you know, and, and in this story that you're all hearing, I'm a big storyteller. In this story you are all hearing, remember how it all started. Sylvia's passion for the mission. And remember that she started her volunteer work by asking for money, which made her uncomfortable. But I bet it wasn't hard to sell those tiles once you were kind of sort of like had God's love dripping all over you, right? We didn't even have to ask, honestly. We just (laughs) sent out notice and People thought, oh, this is a great idea. We want to be part of it, you know. And, you know, like hospitals do it now and theaters do it now. And, you know, uh, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's something that I think people kind of understand. And, again, at a price level that everybody could really feel that they're part of. And there are so many volunteers at God's Love that want to feel part of it because they care about the mission also. Yep, absolutely. You know? so, so. So, so working in the kitchen... And sitting at board meetings, really, mm-hmm. really different experiences. Mm-hmm. And I wondered, um, were there ever times you sat in a board meeting and said, you know, I don't, I just feel too detached from the work. I, I think I'd just rather be in the kitchen. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, no, um, actually, no, I have to say, um, because I always had the kitchen. Okay. And I always felt the board work was important, you know, and I have to say that I, uh, the boards that I was on, I mean, most of the time, I just really liked most everybody that was a board member with me. And um, it was a pleasure to serve. I mean, um, I, I really liked it, I have to say. 
I, I totally liked it. Okay, so all right, so we so we have this. We start we start in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and then we help with direct mail, and then we come up with a an, a scheme that raises well, half a million million dollars. That's also just right, ridiculously mission centric. And then a staff member volunteers you to uh, uh, put your name into nomination to join the board. And there you are with, an, with like another group of fabulous people. And I remember mm-hmm. quite well the group of people who's, who were your colleagues on the board at that time. And, it, and uh, I've always been super impressed with the board of God's Love We Deliver. Um, and because of that, actually, the truth of the matter is, um, you've also had really strong staff leadership, and I think Karen Pearl is just a complete mm-hmm. rock star. And Absolutely. only, you know, I, I make this I make this joke all the time is that a really good board might make a really great hire, and a weak board will never make a good hire. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you, you know, and so there's a lot about a lot about God's love that's very very high functioning. Um, so, um, how'd you come to be chair of the board? So now we, we started by slicing and dicing and now you have climbed to the top of Mount Everest. How did you get there? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I've had three wonderful, I've always been a co-chair not just a chair. Uh, Richard Feldman, Alan Levin and Michael Sennett, uh, were my three co-chairs and all of them were wonderful. And Richard at the time had been, uh, a chair for quite a while and kind of wanted some help. N- not, you know, it, just he, I think he needed to feel like he, he had a, a compatriot. You know what I'm saying? Somebody could bounce things off of, somebody that would take care of certain things. You know, um, he was a lawyer and so he, you know, he was working really hard. So, um, you know, so that's how it kind of came about, you know, um, and so I became co-chair with Richard, and um, when Richard stepped aside, um, Alan came in, um, and uh, he was, so Richard and I were, I don't know how many years we were together, maybe three or four years, and then Alan um, uh, and I were co-chairs for about a year and a half or two years, but then Alan ended up having to, his job moved him um, out of state, and so that became really difficult for him. And then Michael Sennett moved in, and he and I were co-chairs until we um, uh, put in term limits. And um, I left first, and he stayed on his chair um, until uh, another year. And um, I just loved working with all of them. It was really wonderful, and each one of us had strengths and, you know, um, I, I don't even want to say weaknesses. We each had strengths in different areas, and that's kind of how we um, related to um, Karen and before her um, to the executive directors that were there. Right. So um, there are quite a number of nonprofit organizations that have chairs and not co-chairs, mm-hmm. or they have chairs and vice chairs. Um, mm-hmm. Your uh, God's Love, I think, has always had co- has always been always worked on a co-chair model. Uh, no, actually, no? no. I was the first time co-chair. Uh, the the all the times before. Um, and there weren't that many before. Um, I think there was only one other person before Richard that was a chair, and then Richard, and then I was co-chair. And now they've gone back to just a chair. Would you, advo- me, would um, you advocate for the, uh, so, you know, I, 
I, when I was at GLAD, I had co-chairs, and I found that to be a pretty good, a pretty good model. Some nonprofits think that that's not such a good model. Would you, um, could you make the case for a co-chair model? Um, I could make the case either way. Um, uh, I could make the case that if you have two people, like I said initially, that where the strengths are in different areas, and um, you've got a really good leadership, uh, you know, a team to work with. Um, staff-wise, it can really work, and it can also work the other way, honestly, um, and it has worked now, for God's love, um, just have, going back to the, you know, chair, and having a vice chair also, so. Right, and the vice chair, it, it, when the vice chair is, uh, steps into that role, is it assumed that they will become the chair? Mm, I'm not so sure anymore, mm-hmm. I have to be mm-hmm. honest. Right, because that's... <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and yeah. some models are like that, and some models are not. Right, some models aren't. Right. Yeah, I, right. I, um, I, lo- I, I think if you're not doing co-chairs, I think the model should be then there's a, a chair and a vice chair that really will step in because yeah. then this way, you've got you 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 have continuity. Yeah, I think that's right, and I also I also think that oftentimes vice chair roles are very poorly defined. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not always very clear what it is the vice chair is supposed to do versus the chair. But I I found that a co-chair model, some people say, you know, I really just want to work with one person. But I I generally found that having co-chairs was good because because most of, you know, my co-chairs generally had full-time jobs. And I could lose one of them for a period of time, you know, to a a big business trip or vacation. And Mm -hmm. I always had somebody else to rely on, so... That's, so, that's very true, yeah, actually. Yeah, so I found it to be helpful. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, I yeah. also found it to be helpful if I had um, a very strong uh, chair. If, I, if, I, if, the, if the co-chairs were not of equal um, capacity, it was good, uh-huh. right? If I, I would rather have one strong and one weak co-chair than one weak mm-hmm. chair. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So oh, uh, that would, uh, yeah, so for I, uh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. think that's an, that was an, that's another plus for this sort of the co-chair model. So yeah. you were board chair during uh, several leadership transitions, and and uh, you know I know you worked. And we just have time for a couple more questions here. You, during a number of transitions, you you put your heart and soul into being on the board. Really quickly, best and worst thing about being a board chair. Well. Um, well, I think the best is that that you can um, you can be part of an organization um, and influence um, uh, the direction that that organization takes, and um, and hopefully it, it's a very positive thing. Right. Um, the worst. Um, well, the well, most challenging. <laughs> the most challenging. I think sometimes board members that don't produce, honestly, that mm-hmm. can be challenging. Holding them know? accountable. Holding them accountable. Um, yeah. Um, you know, uh, and and that's hard because, you know, um, you have board members for all different kinds of reasons, let's face it, you know. And, um, and sometimes, you know, the reason you have a board member is not always the best reason. And then, then if, if they don't produce, you know, it becomes um, it, it becomes difficult. Right. Let's put it I, like that. Right. Okay. I think that is that 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 is the challenge. Is yeah. You know, sort of ha- that you know, the very best boards 
do not mm-hmm. have 100% high performers. They never will. No. They never do. No. And um, managing that managing that yeah. as a board chair is challenging. Managing that when you have board members who are deli- over-delivering and other board members who are not. Uh, I do think that is that, that sounds yeah. like probably one of the biggest challenges. So we're yeah. just about out of time, Sylvia. And I wondered... Any advice, recognizing you're, you're talking to a lot of executive directors, a good portion of board chairs, as they consider a volunteer strategy? Any, any advice for them, final words, do's and don'ts uh, you want to toss out for folks? Well, I would just say um, volunteers, as far as I'm concerned, are very important individuals to an organization, and they need to be treated that way with respect and to honor the fact that these individuals are giving of their time and their efforts and to really utilize individuals, to, to really let them shine also, um, even if it's beyond whatever um, skills that, that you've asked them to do, that maybe they could do more, you know, and to figure out how to do more, uh, I think is a very important kind of thing. Um, and so I think you should really, um, really know that your volunteers are important to the organization. I, I also heard so much in what you said uh, during this last half hour or so about the sort of the care and, and I, I don't mean to keep using food metaphors, but the care and feeding the of volunteers. The care and feeding <laughs> yeah. of volunteers, yeah. right? Is that the care and feeding, yeah. the, no, the notion of building a tribe of volunteers, mm-hmm. the notion of connecting the volunteers to the larger work. Like that's, those, to me, are the pieces of the puzzle that moved you up the ladder. Because mm-hmm. the more invested, the more that invested you became, mm-hmm. the more you started to have ideas about, gee, you know, I do direct mail. Maybe they could use some help. Right. Mm-hmm. And and you were busy. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like you were home wearing a house dress and eating bonbons. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you were busy. But the more passionate and the more appreciated and the more a sense of community you felt as a volunteer, the more you wanted to do. I couldn't have said it better, Joan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And when you talk about and when you talk about care of feeding, I mean, even giving your volunteers a cup of coffee, you know, or or you know, a treat every once in a while, you know, all those kinds of things, you know, just very simple, simple things. But your your conclusions were very good, Joan. Yes. Thank you Thank very you. much, Sylvia. So I think I should quit <laughs> while I'm ahead. <laughs> um, good we, deal. We have been listening to uh, volunteer holic Sylvia Vogelman who uh, has um, dedicated so much of her time and energy to God's Love We Deliver, an organization here in New York that provides, let's see if I can do this right, delicious, nutritious meals to folks who are Mm -hmm. living with chronic illnesses throughout the five boroughs. And are you on Long Island? And And Hudson County. And Hudson County now, too. Um, Yeah, well, for a while, Hudson County. But now we're doing a little Long Island and Westchester. Yeah, it's it's really uh, the the growth of the organization is a test is it really a testament to how well it's run, and the the story that you have told us today yeah. is a testament to how well it's thank run you. as well. So, Sylvia, thank you very much for joining us, and well, um, thank you for having me. Well, I I do think uh, that our listeners uh, heard a lot of important important things here. So we're gonna let you go, and um, uh, 
I just want to say a couple of quick things that, as you know, this podcast is available on iTunes. It's also always available when it goes live on my blog at joangary.com. That's with two R's. So you can find it in either place. And we've been doing this podcast now for over a year and have a whole host of a variety and diversity of topics that are, uh, we believe, of great value to both board and staff leaders. I would be remiss if I did not plug my new book, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to call it Nonprofits Are Messy, but I was... I was told people might Google Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, so you can Google that or you can find it on Amazon.com. And that's it for us. Uh, as always, thank you so much for everything that you are doing to change the world in ways big and small. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Nonprofits Are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.